Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We look to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4 this morning. Once again, this morning, we're looking at a few of these parables that Jesus speaks. And I mentioned last week that Mark only records a few parables. He records the parable of the sower that we looked at last week. He will record the parable of the tenants in chapter 12. And then these three short parables we're going to look at this morning. But the parables that Mark does record are particularly significant for what Jesus has to tell us about who he is and about the kingdom that he is announcing. Now last week we saw Jesus put a particular emphasis on the parable of the sower, which challenged each listener to examine his heart and ask, what kind of soil am I? Am I allowing the word of God to roll off my back in one ear, out another? Am I responding to the word of God with joy only to wither under suffering or when faced with the desires and cares of this world? Or am I good soil? Am I listening to the word and receiving it in faith, trusting it so that the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ comes mine? Well, this week we want to turn to these three short parables that belong together because they tell us more about the nature of this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. So I want to read together Mark chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 21 and read down through verse 34. Listen to the word of God. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, And the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us and how I pray this morning that your spirit who inspired this word and gave it to us would now apply it to our hearts that we may know Christ and the kingdom that comes through him. We pray it through his sake. Amen. There's a common phrase that you have likely heard at some point or another that goes something like, well, there is certainly more to him or her than meets the eye. 
And the phrase usually means that a person has some talent or ability that no one would have guessed just by meeting them or looking at them. It's the kind of thing that I heard about Kate after our seminary talent show 15 years ago. She was known as just the admissions office lady at the desk, and here for the talent show, she stood on her head for an extended period of time in the middle of the stage while reciting three poems, one in Old English, one in Middle English, and one in Modern English, to represent the development of the English language. No one had seen that coming. (laughs) And maybe for the right price, you could persuade a repeat performance in the gathering space afterwards today. I didn't ask Kate about that. And when Jesus arrived in Galilee preaching the kingdom of God, The reality of his person and the glory of his kingdom were hidden under the humility of his human form. And talk about the kingdom of God, and the Israelites would have imagined the glorious arrival of power and blessing in his presence that would dazzle the nations. And here's a poor carpenter teaching some rural Israelites beside the Galilean lake. And the reality and the expectations may not have seemed to line up. But Jesus addresses these expectations in these three short parables. And the point that he makes repeatedly in these parables is this. To the human eye, the kingdom of God may seem hidden and weak with little chance for success. But in the end, it will be revealed in all its vast glory thanks to the power of God at work in it. To the human eye, the kingdom of God may seem weak, hidden, with small chance for success, but God's power is at work, and it will be revealed in all its glory. And I want to walk through each of these parables and see how they contribute to Jesus' promises about the kingdom. So we'll begin in verses 21 to 25 with the parable of the lamp. Now this parable can be a little confusing at first because Jesus actually uses the same image of a lamp not being put under a basket but set on a lampstand in multiple different ways in multiple different passages. So if you're like me, when you first read it, you might have been thinking of Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, no one puts a lamp under a basket but sets it on a lampstand. Therefore, let your light shine among men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Maybe you even were reading this and humming, you know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, and it might be ringing through there, but this parable is different. Jesus here is not making a point about how we personally ought to live for Jesus. Here he's applying this image to the kingdom of God. See, if you were to read through the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the kingdom of the Lord... The prophecies describe such glory and majesty that all the nations will either be subdued in judgment or they will flock to behold it. You might think of Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, which open with this description of the coming of God's kingdom. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. These are the words about the coming of the kingdom of God. Yet here is Jesus proclaiming the kingdom as a poor, homegrown, untrained rabbi gathering a small crowd in the northern corner of Israel. And not only does Jesus himself not appear to be a glorious arrival in power, but Jesus seems to be keeping his identity 
somewhat secret. He commands the demons, don't proclaim who I am. He tells the leper who was healed not to say anything to anyone about his miraculous healing. Now this is because his time had not yet come, as we've talked about. But the result is that the kingdom of God in Christ at this point looks rather hidden, rather than the open blaze of glory that Isaiah 60 would suggest. But Jesus uses this parable to declare that the kingdom will not remain hidden. Interestingly, while your Bibles translate verse 21 in a very general way, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket. The Greek could be translated is the lamp brought to be put under a basket. And the question, who or what is the lamp? And if you're thinking about the Old Testament, you will know that the Messiah is described as the lamp. Second Kings eight nineteen, we read that the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah since he had promised to give a lamp to David and to his sons forever. Psalm 137, 17, the Lord promised, In Zion I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. And you can rest assured, Jesus is saying, no one brings a lamp and keeps it hidden for long. In the end, it will be revealed and set on the lampstand for all to see. One might be excused for missing the glory of the arrival of the kingdom of God on the shores of the Galilean lake here, but for those who have ears to hear and hearts to receive it, Jesus says, don't be fooled. The promises of Isaiah 60 will be fulfilled. And if no one brings a lamp to leave it under a basket, how much less will God send the lamp and not reveal him and the kingdom of God will all its glory? And the question is, will you have ears to hear this promise? Will you be ready for the kingdom when it arrives in all its glory? And so this is the point of this first parable, that the kingdom may seem to be hidden now, but it will be revealed in the fullness of its glory. We'll come back to Jesus' comments about paying attention to this in a minute, but for now I want to look to parable number two in verses 26 to 29. Here Jesus focuses on the power of God that will make what looks weak and incapable to grow into everything that he intends for it. Jesus returns to the genre of farming, just like the parable that he told us last week. And he compares the kingdom of God to a farmer scattering seeds in the ground. Now once again, just this comparison had to cut against the expectations of his listeners. I can imagine if, if Jesus was doing a little bit of listener response and he were to call out for some answers and he would say, well, well to what would you compare God's kingdom? Certainly the people listening would, would call out, you know, golden temples, victorious generals, glorious kings. And Jesus says, well, actually it's seeds in the dirt. And you could imagine the people listening saying, the promised Messiah, the glorious kingdom of God compared to seeds in the dirt? But Jesus draws a specific parallel between the seeds and the kingdom here. The farmer, Jesus says, goes to bed every night and wakes up every morning. And one day he sees the seed sprout and grow, but he does not know how it happened. That it happened, he can recognize. That it might happen again because of his experience, he might come to expect. But he cannot make it happen. 
He has no control over how and when it will happen fully, and he cannot explain how or why it has happened. There is another power at work, a power outside the farmer's control and outside of his understanding, a power in the seeds themselves such that the earth produces this plentiful harvest. I read this parable, and when I read this parable, I inevitably think of the classic children's stories, Frog and Toad. You may remember that in Frog and Toad, Toad planted a garden and expected his seed to spring up immediately. And when, and when the seed didn't start sprouting immediately, Toad started yelling at his seeds. And then he was afraid he had scared his seeds, so he came out and read them a bedtime story. And when that didn't work, he played his violin for the seeds, and then he sang to the seeds, and he goes to effort after effort until he collapses exhausted on the ground and falls asleep for several days. And when he wakes up, there are his seeds. They've sprouted. And he realizes that all of his efforts were useless, and he doesn't know how the seeds grew, but there they are. And Jesus is saying that is something about the way the kingdom of God grows as well. It will grow from blade to ear to full harvest, not because we or anyone can explain how it happened or has figured out the perfect method to make it happen. It's not as if we've got the perfect ministry model, so now we can make the church grow and flourish in all of these ways in our own strength and power. No, it happens only because the power of God is at work in the seed and the gospel that is preached. And it is God's power that brings about the growth. You know, we might look at the world powers and think, how can a harvest of faith in Jesus Christ possibly spring up and flourish in the face of Nero and his power and hatred, in the face of Attila the Hun destroying civilization, in the face of the unstoppable surge of Islam as it swept across the continents, in the face of Enlightenment humanism, in the face of Russian communism, in the face of Chinese authoritarianism, in the face of European secularism, in the face of American moral decay, and the list just goes on and on and on as we think of all of the reasons why we could not expect faith in Jesus Christ to spring up and flourish. But in the gospel is hidden the power of God through the Spirit of God The power for growth is in the word itself as God comes and accompanies it. So against all explanation and against all expectation, Jesus says, while the kingdom of God may not look like it has great chances for success, it will explode into a full harvest ready for the farmer thanks to the power of God that is at work in it. As Jesus will tell his disciples a few chapters later, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And that will certainly be true for the fulfillment of God's promises and the arrival of God's kingdom through his only begotten son. And that is the point of parable number two. Well, let's look at parable number three then in verses 30 to 32. In this parable... We return again to the image of seeds, but this time to a specific seed, to the mustard seed. Now, scientifically, the mustard seed is not actually the smallest seed known in the entire world, but it is one of the smallest seeds, and it appears that it was certainly one of the smallest commonly known in the first century. 
Nor is the mustard plant itself the largest tree that would ever grow. The cedars of Lebanon would have been known as a larger tree, but it is the disparity between the one millimeter wide mustard seed and the 20 feet tall by 20 feet wide mustard plant that came from that one millimeter seed that made this a common example throughout ancient literature for something small growing to something unexpectedly large. We read this example other places, both in Scripture and outside of Scripture, and so Jesus' listeners would have readily known this image of the mustard seed, but the question is, would they understand how this image applied to the kingdom of God? And Jesus' point is that like the mustard seed, the kingdom of God will begin small and unremarkable, seemingly fragile and unpromising. I mean, this is no walnut or acorn promising a a huge tree. These mustard seeds would have made nothing more than an unsatisfying snack for the smallest bird that came across them. And yet, it is this tiny mustard seed that will grow to be larger than anything else in the garden, such that those very birds will find refuge in its shade. And isn't that the perfect image for the kingdom of God? Maybe it reminds you of another image that made the same point in Daniel chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that Daniel interpreted where a a small stone was cut out and it smashed the kingdoms of the world. And then that stone grew and grew and grew into a mountain that filled the earth. Jesus is giving this parable on the edge of the Sea of Galilee and if you think about it, What did the kingdom of God have to its name at that point? Well, so far to the human eye, it could claim a few motley fishermen, a tax collector, a fake who would betray Jesus, several others of not much notoriety, and some impoverished sick folks who had been healed. That certainly doesn't seem like the recipe for changing the world. And yet, this tiny seed will grow into the description of Revelation 7-9, which says that this seed is going to grow into a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the end of this kingdom. A little over a year ago, Jared Knott published his book, Tiny Blunders, Big Disasters, 39 Tiny Mistakes That Changed the World Forever. It's a fascinating read as he traced 39 little slip-ups people made that changed the course of history. For instance, not many people know that on the Titanic, sailors were employed at every shift just to watch out for icebergs. But on that fateful night in 1911, the evening watch headed for bed with the cabinet key in his pocket. And the cabinet happened to be locked. And the cabinet held the binoculars that the next watch would use to look for icebergs. And since that key was in his pocket and the cabinet was locked, they had to look with the naked eye at night. And as a result, they could not see the iceberg until it was too late to turn a ship as large as the Titanic. It's a small mistake that leads to a great outcome. But how much more is that true when the tiny thing we're talking about the seemingly insignificant thing we're talking about happens to be the Son of God come in the flesh. How much more when the little thing we're talking about happens to be 12 men upon whom the Holy Spirit of God 
came to anoint their teaching and soften hearts and bring conviction to the preached word so that in utter dismay the Jews in Thessalonica cry out, these men have turned the whole world upside down. This world-changing work of the kingdom of God, of course, is not a catastrophe. It's not a disaster. It is the salvation of mankind so that the people of earth may find rest and refuge in its shade. So Jesus' point in this third parable is that what starts very small will grow to be the source of refuge for the whole world. And so we come to verses 33 and 34 and we find that Jesus has declared from multiple angles now that the kingdom of God may appear hidden, weak, and small. But to those who will listen, he gives the truth of what is to come, that this kingdom of God will be revealed in all of its vast glory thanks to the power of God at work in the people of God. Of course, Mark reminds us that many who heard Jesus did not understand what these stories meant. But Jesus, in his grace, explained and revealed them to his disciples. And so once again, we have to acknowledge that any understanding we have is given to us as a gift by the Spirit of God. And so once again, as we listen to God's word and hear what he is teaching us, we need to give thanks and praise to God for what he has done in giving us his word and giving us understanding of it. Well, before we close... There are two words of application that I want to zero in on from this passage. We've, we've alluded to both of them already, but I think they both deserve a full look in the face before we conclude. So first, notice again the emphasis that Jesus places on listening to the word. Last week, Jesus pressed his hearers to answer the question, what kind of soil are you? Here, we find Jesus again saying directly in verse 24, pay attention to what you hear. And then he concludes, to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, this might seem like a rather unfair statement of Jesus. What does he mean that to the one who has, more will be given, and the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken? I can imagine the outcry in my house if I decided to divvy up the remaining ice cream according to that standard. You know, you didn't get much, but I'll take that from you, and you got a lot, great, I'll give you more. But remember, Jesus here is talking about understanding. He's talking about our ability to understand the Word of God that God has given us. And Jesus is really just repeating what he said back in verse 13, that having ears to hear would enable one to understand all the, par the parables, while the one who will not listen and receive in faith will leave empty without any understanding at all. Or to put it another way, Jesus is saying, to the one who listens and hears and receives my word with faith, he will continue to have ears to hear so that he will continue to grow more and more in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the glory of his kingdom through Jesus Christ, his Savior. In other words, if he has ears to hear, it will be measured to him according to the measure he measures with. More will be given to him. But to the one who will not receive these words in faith, even the knowledge that he has will become utterly useless. I mean, just think about the crowds that were standing on the shores of the sea that morning. Certainly, nearly all of these Jewish people would have known something about God 
Surely all of them would have had heard some teaching from the Torah or the prophecies. Surely all of them knew something of the promises of the Messiah who was coming. And yet, to reject Jesus and his words was to mean that even what they knew would be useless to them. And so it is this morning. I look around our sanctuary, and there are so many here who have grown up in the church. You can recite at least many, if not all, of the books of the Bible in order. You know the main stories from Scripture. You even may know some good theology. But the question is, have you received the good news of the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ? Because if you do not receive the good news of the kingdom of God with faith, if you do not repent of your sin and receive and rest upon Jesus alone for salvation if you do not forsake yourself in the world in order to gain him, then all the knowledge that you have will prove worthless and will only add in the end to the justice of God's punishment for rejecting his word and his son. And so the application that Jesus himself gives is pay attention, listen, do not leave this morning without hearing and receiving the good news of the kingdom of God that has come through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first application. Secondly, and finally then, I want us to see how these three parables give hope to those of us who have put all our eggs in the basket of faith in Jesus Christ. You know, from a human standpoint, Christianity's chances have seemed rather shaky from day one. How could anyone really think that this little break-off group would thrive more than the established Judaism of the day? How would anyone think that this testimony of faith in Jesus Christ would survive the onslaught of the Roman emperors? How could anyone anticipate that Christianity would survive the divisions, the debates, the heresies, the false teachings, the immoralities that sprung up within it? You know, if you're like me, I'll certainly admit that if I look around myself, there are plenty of reasons to get discouraged. We read that fewer and fewer people are attending churches. We read that fewer and fewer young people are recognizing Jesus Christ as the Son of God and wanting to live according to His Word. We read of big-name pastors who have been revealed as abusive we see personal sins and conflicts with each other among the body of Christ, sapping our energy and strength. The church we see regularly getting snookered by the philosophies of our culture and the desires of the world. We see the church so often getting caught up in its desire for power and success that it commits injustices and abandons the gospel along the way. And all around us we see the moral revolution that appears to be winning the day in America. I can be discouraged when I read from the liberal main council of churches when they declared recently that any church who withholds full approval for all LGBTQ lifestyles, that church is on the wrong side of history. And sometimes it might feel like that. But in the midst of that discouragement come these parables of Jesus. Jesus says that the kingdom of God that begins as hidden, weak, and small will grow and yield an abundant harvest by the power of God at work among his people. 
And we're talking about the power of God here, which will not let a single one of his sheep to be snatched from his hands. We're talking about the power of God, which is drawing people from every nation and people to find salvation in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the power of God to pull us away from the world and to prepare us for the next through faith in Jesus. And this may be happening quietly and slowly, but it is happening continually. It is happening all around us. It is happening in ways that we can't explain and we don't always expect. But it is happening as God is growing his kingdom. As one commentator puts it, God does not hurl the kingdom. He plants it as a seed, present even now in the ministry of Jesus, hidden and imperceptible. And the faith that Jesus requires is to sleep and to rise in the humble confidence that God has invaded this troubled world not with a crusade, but with a seed, which will grow by his power into a full and fruitful harvest to come. You see, what Jesus is summarizing here is nothing other than the Christian virtue of hope. What is hope? Hope is the assurance of a good outcome that God has promised, no matter what things might look like now thanks to the sovereign providence of God at work. Hope is the confidence that salvation in Christ and the victory of the kingdom of God will be fulfilled in the end as he has said that it would, no matter what he takes you through to get there. So do not waver in the face of a weighty storm. Do not grow weary under the constant drip, drip, drip of the pressures and temptation that never seem to stop. Because God's love, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, meaning that we have a hope that will not disappoint. For that spirit, as Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, 17, is a spirit of adoption, telling us that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified with him. Glorified with him, and a vast kingdom that has grown and come to abundance thanks to the power of God at work within us to the honor of his name forever and forever. And if that is our hope, how can we not have confidence and joy in his work in all circumstances? Let's pray. Father, we confess that to look around us, to look in human terms, It seems that there is every reason to think that the kingdom of God would be on shaky ground. But then comes Jesus to give us these parables which tell us clearly that the kingdom of God will look hidden and weak and small often from the human perspective. But we are not to be deceived because Jesus tells us that the power of God is at work The power of God is at work and it will reveal this kingdom in all its glory. It will bring about a full harvest. A full harvest is such glory that it offers refuge and rest for all who will come to it. Father, how I pray that we would be encouraged by Jesus' words this morning. Encouraged to come to him in faith if we have not done so before. And encouraged to rest in his promises with hope and confidence in the power of God. May we go in that hope to the glory of your name. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.
The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.